Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present an interview of Lenore Gijig with Lillian Allen. My name is Joshua Whitehead, and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. This interview was recorded during a Tea House symposium called Wisdom Council in September of 2019. Wisdom Council recognized the imperfect knowledge transmission methods of the colonial system and, particularly, the ways it has tended to fragment non-Western knowledges and privilege the textual over the oral. Using a combination of traditional and contemporary practices, it brought together a small council of mostly BIPOC senior practitioners in the contemporary arts to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders and racialized communities, stories of the past, present and future, stories in cyclical time, community formations they've experienced, community formations they remember, how they understand the work that needs to be done, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of that gathering's work. Lenore Gijig is a citizen of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation on the Saugeen Bruce Peninsula and resides in the home of the Chippewas of Nawash Unceded First Nation. Lenore is a storyteller, a poet, an award-winning author, naturalist, a mother, a grandmother, and great-grandmother. Her long-awaited first collection of poetry, Running on the March Wind, was published in 2015. Currently, she works delivering programs that teach about the natural and the cultural history of the peninsula and the Great Lakes, and currently helps area visitors to better understand their connections to the land and to the water. Lillian Allen is a professor of creative writing at Ontario College of Art and Design University. Multidisciplinary and experimental, Allen's creativity crosses many genres, including radio, theater, music, and film. As a writer, a featured artist, and a producer slash director and national radio show host, Allen is a recognized authority and activist on issues of diversity in culture, cultural equity, cross-cultural collaborations, and the power of arts in education, and has worked locally, nationally, and internationally in this capacity. Her eclectic, insightful, and inspiring lectures and performances have taken her as far as Jamaica and Switzerland. 
She has also held the post of Distinguished Writer in Residence at Canada's Queen's University and the University of Windsor. In this interview, both writers explore ideas around how to write and be the BIPOC woman in Canadian literature, but also including themes of cultural appropriation and authenticity, racial discrimination in the arts, specifically in the late 80s, the initial entanglement with the Writers' Union of Canada, the evolution of Indigenous literature, primarily using the trickster as a central figure, writing as an act of war versus writing as a gift, the invisible labor of BIPOC women, the, quote, universal reader versus writing for community, protocols, accountabilities, and oral storytelling, specifically with Lenore discussing the importance of tobacco and offering us a beautiful breakdown of Anishinaabe uses of the four medicines, activism in the age of social media, the presence of communication as embodied versus technologic, a gorgeous story of by Lenore sharing with her son on how to wrestle with God, learning to make it home through connection to the land, and finally we end on another beautiful personal story from Lenore about survivance and her father. We really hope you enjoy this podcast. Good morning out there. Um, we indeed are recording. So in studio here with Lenore Keishin Tobias. Um, we're getting together to just talk about um, some things that we've been involved in, some things we've experienced, and you know, give a kind of reflection as we string some of those together. We want to uh, leave a kind of oral um, document so that people can not just know some of the things that happened, but get an idea of some of the textures and uh, some of the impact. So my name is Lillian Allen, and I'm interviewing Lenore. So Lenore, um, yeah, just can you locate yourself? Can you... Ah, yes, Lillian. It's good to be here with you. So, um, Lenore Indijnikas, Maingan Indodam, Niashingaming Indonjava. So, I've just introduced myself to you in my language. I told you my name, Lenore. I told you my clan. Maingan, the wolf Indodam, is my clan. I told you where I come from, um, Niashingaming that beautiful point of land that almost looks like an island but is only partially surrounded by water. Indonjaba is where my sound comes from. So my sound, my, my breath, my voice, my breathing, my perspective, whatever about me uh, is informed by the land. Where you're rooted. Where I'm rooted, that's yeah. right. Right. Yeah, so let's, thank you, and it's really a thrill for me to be here and talking to you, and this weekend has been, um, you know, very healing and, and very informative, and it's so 
fantastic to connect with people who have been in the trenches for decades. And um, I've been in the trenches with you. Yes. <laughs> I've seen you. Yes, that was so, a while ago. <laughs> that was a while ago. So I want to go back to, um, you know, the work that you did to help to transform Canadian literature or can lit, so to speak. So to speak, yes. Yeah. Well, that started back sometime in the late 80s and into the early 90s. Uh, it had to do uh, around the issue of cultural appropriation. Um, and uh, I'd have to say uh, discrimination, racial discrimination uh, in the arts mm -hmm. because our peoples were not um, uh, or didn't have access to uh, funds or, or space. And that's uh, in the eighties. That's in the, 80s. that was in the late eighties. Yeah. yeah, I mean at least that's when I was I started speaking out was okay. about that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, indeed, the the actual presence of indigenous uh, voices and indigenous uh, works um, were not there or there in any um, recognizable um, quantity in these institutions. Um, when the appropriation issue came up, you were the main voice um, defending um, authenticity. Um, you were the main voice um, educating the Canadian public that was important to hear the stories of Indigenous people from Indigenous uh, points of view. Oh, definitely, yeah. because because we had been spoken for and paraphrased for so long. Um, and I, I'm sure that the Canadian public still saw uh, Aboriginal peoples as children, uh, as people without, um, without a, a history, uh, without a culture, and most certainly without a history of, uh, of literature. And of course, uh, when they think of literature, it's always uh, always written literature in a certain uh, kind of way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Not the yeah. not the oral aspect uh, of literature or storytelling. Mm -hmm. So there's this entanglement with the writers' union, with people like Daniel David Moses, mm -hmm. people like Susan Crean. Um, it was both uh, productive and disturbing, um, always at the same time. And I would even venture to say, because of that effort and persistence, we did make some progress and pass the baton on to mm -hmm. some people, like to writing through race and some other ripples. In yeah, the, the, appro the appropriate voice. The appropriate voice. That's right, yeah. yes. So, so how did that come about, and, and how did you see your role in that? And um, How that came about, um, starting in the Indigenous, or starting in the Native, uh, I always get confused about Indigenous, Aboriginal, and Native. Yeah. We, we said Native back then, or we First Nation, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, maybe I have to go back a little further. Uh -huh. uh, I went to um, uh, university uh, because I wanted to be uh, a writer. So I went and did uh, creative writing at York University. 
and it was at that time it was so difficult to find complete works by native authors we were always our people were always anthologized uh and uh so uh you every decade or so there come an anthology and various writers were there but we couldn't find or I couldn't find uh, complete works by by a single author except from down in the down down in the yeah. states they were a little more progressive down there mm-hmm. so um, when I was able then to connect with um, different um, native authors there was uh, Daniel David Moses and Thompson Highway and uh, Drew, uh, Drew Hayden Taylor, um, Edna King, and other people in the in the Toronto area, and we talked about our dilemma and various aspects of it. Uh, for example, having uh, manuscripts um, rejected because the editor thought that Native people didn't play chess, for example. Uh-huh. <laughs> or they uh, would have little scribble little notes on manuscripts saying make more native, right? Yeah. And I mean, we were writing what we knew best, where we came from. So we got together and we formed uh, uh, an organization to uh, support and promote native writing and the native and the native voice, and we call that. Uh, we call that uh, organization the Committee to Reestablish the Trickster. Oh. Cret. Yeah. Can we bring that back? <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I think that's where it started because mm-hmm. we started talking about these things amongst ourselves and how how difficult it was to get to mainstream to even look at our stuff yeah. and acknowledge that um, that we were writers yeah. yeah, and that we could write. Yeah. Yeah. So mainstream, first of all, they didn't have the material. They marginalized it, banished it, um, disappeared it, not paid any attention. And then when you brought it forward, they're telling you that's not what they're expecting. No, they had something else in their imagination about what you... Yeah, exactly. And Uh and the thing was, the people who were getting published were non-Native writers writing about uh, Native subject subject matters. Native Native uh, literature or Native storytelling was always being measured against the backdrop of uh, European the European literary history. They refused to see uh, Native literature as something on its own in yeah. its own right. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you this question. I, I thought of other questions to ask you because there's some people even now as they listen to this podcast mm-hmm. will say they don't understand appropriation. Mm-hmm. But if you hadn't done that work and the other people who followed and it continued on the production of the literature in the Canadian context, the way it was, what would the scene be like now? Well, it would still be very much the way it was back then exactly. where where the uh, um, non-native uh, white uh, Canadians were the uh, were the experts. Right. Uh, they were they were the the um, they were the writers of uh, native knowledge and, and, and culture, and uh, it didn't matter how whitewashed or inaccurate uh, their material was. They they were the ones that got they the grants it, 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 to continue doing that. 
And that's what people who are listening would be reading today. So that's exactly. All these voices that have emerged and listening to Native people, Indigenous people telling the stories of their lives, their communities, their history, and whatever other stories they want to tell would have been minuscule compared to um, uh, what we're seeing now. So, oh. so it wouldn't be there. Uh, people, you wouldn't be reading. You'd be getting um, <laughs> more avoided. Because, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, you know, they can get real, to be real experts at this. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, I just want to say a bit more mm-hmm. about uh, the Committee to Reestablish the Trickster mm-hmm. before talking about uh, issues around uh, the, the Writers' Union and cultural right. appropriation. Yeah. So... Our focus was to to draw uh, attention to uh, Native literature and Native writers. And we used the central character of the trickster. And uh, once word got out that... um, uh, about about the trickster, then this is when indigenous writers uh, started popping up all over the all over well, right across the country, right. um, and trickster in various manifestations uh, appeared, and that and that was good. That was that's what the work of the committee was intended to do. Um, in regards to the Writers Union of Canada. Uh, because I had already been a published uh, author, uh, Dan Moses, who was a member, uh, uh, a Delaware poet, play very well-known playwright these days, uh, he had uh, he had been a member of the Writers Union for uh, a couple of years, and he approached me and uh, asked me to to join because he said he said it was really lonely there. Uh-huh. Because he was the only, and I have to say, writer of color, and um, so I agreed. I thought, oh, I, I'll I'll do this. Now, at the same time, uh, what was happening? Cret was going on. Uh, we were doing the work of Cret, and uh, out in the larger community, there were there were issues of voice appropriation and cultural appropriation. Uh, in the Asian community, in, in, in the black community. And I was listening with those because I knew what that felt like. I knew what it felt like to be, to be appropriated, to, to be spoken for, uh, to be fair, uh, paraphrased, and not to be allowed to speak my own voice. So I, I listened very carefully and at one point, I uh, talked with uh, Daniel Moses, and I said, Dan, I'm going to have to speak up about this. Mm-hmm. I don't know when, I don't know where, but I have to say something. Mm-hmm. And um, through the whole issue of uh, cultural appropriation, uh, Daniel Moses was there for me. He, he m- may have stayed in the background, but he was there. He was a... He was a uh, he was a really good supporter. So the issue st- uh, the issue came uh, came forth. I really can't remember exactly how how things unfolded, but the writers union uh, took it upon themselves to um, to to get into that discussion or be part of the debate and held um, 
uh, uh, an annual convention. Yeah, that's because they receive various complaints and rattling from their members. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I, there were various topics going on at that time. I, I can't even remember where whether this was at uh, Queen's University or or whether it was in uh, in Waterloo. Uh, anyhow, uh, there were there were different uh, different guest speakers, and there were uh, there was one forum where uh, it was on native literature, but they didn't have an, uh, a a native commentator or facilitator, and they certainly didn't have uh, native speakers. They were all non-native. They were all wow. white Canadian speakers, mm -hmm. and so Daniel and I were sitting uh, way up in the audience, and. Uh, I was really insulted. Of course. I mean, we were there, the two low, lonely, uh, Aboriginal uh, writers, and they didn't ask us to be part of the to be part of the panel to speak as an expert. Mm -hmm. We hijacked. We hijacked right. that that forum. Revolutionary. Yeah. Uh -huh. I stood up and yeah. uh, I challenged them, and I said, "Okay, so." Come on, <laughs> come on, Dan. <laughs> so I grabbed him by the arm and uh, and actually pulled him down down uh, onto the stage. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, you have to do things like that yeah. if you want to speak up. You want people to listen so to have, you. Have any of those people kind of apologized to you now? Because it would be unheard of now. And I'm sure people are woefully embarrassed. They'll it's easy to claim we didn't know ignorance we're doing our best and intention mm -hmm. um when people talk about intention i like this and then what exactly did you intend mm -hmm. i like to ask this question so have you gotten people gotten back to you and said that was so crappy i'm sorry you had to go through that you know i don't know what we were thinking colonialism was just set up so in our bones i'm ashamed yeah no no one has said anything about that, no, no apologies or anything like that. Oh, wow. So it's just kind of left yeah. at, at 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 that. Yeah. Um, so, so let me just say this out there because this is going to be a podcast that's going. Yes. On. So to all those people who have been vaguely involved who can apologize on behalf of that system and those people, um, it is still necessary. Um, it's not been solicited. Um, but as a BIPOC person myself and as a decent human being, we have to make these kind of addresses. So I just want to say that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I can apologize to you on behalf of that foolishness as a human being, having gone through some of it myself, um, you know, and kind of your end of the stick too, I do apologize to all the people I've had to go through just struggling you know, Lillian, I don't think you need to apologize for anything because mm -hmm. you were in the trenches there with me. If anything, mm -hmm. you need to have an apology uh, from the from the mainstream uh, as well um, for, for for that work for their their uh, uh, their their blindness. Yeah, yeah, the blind spots. Yeah, no, it's it it is a time that those people should get together by themselves. And to to talk about how they can redress their actions because these are actions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you took it. You that's that's really important because um, and you you took it over and you 
you you cause the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I like what, to say is I ruffled feathers. You ruffled feathers. <laughs> white feathers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You ruffled white feathers. White complacency. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, we just call it white supremacy and uh-huh. over with it because yeah. that's exactly what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely. Know. So sometime after that, I did an opinion piece in the uh, in the Globe and Mail. Came out as "Stop Stealing Native Stories," mm-hmm. and when I wrote that, I mean, I I prayed over that, I ached over that, I cried over that, and um, the way I wrote it was as a challenge, and they edited it. <laughs> I had the challenge at the end at the end of the piece, mm-hmm. and they took it out of the end and they put it at the front, and it became a, because they put it at a front at the front of the piece, uh, people saw it as a declaration of war, and that's how they responded. Mm-hmm. I mean, they came down on me so hard and from all directions. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, well, uh, I, I was there. I heard the, um, the response. And I mean, in some ways, we have to put responsibility back on them because they should have been intelligent enough to know that it was a challenge and actually it was a gift mm. to them that this labor that people like you put in to uh, create this kind of space and to bring accountability is a gift. It enriches their life apart from anything else, apart from what it does to your communities, our communities. It's a gift because mm-hmm. they're expanding world. Right. And, so, you know, I mean, I, I, I thought I, what I was trying to do was create a dialogue. Yeah. yeah. And it didn't. It just, they rejected that, and it just yeah. turned out into an all-out war. Yeah. And accusations about trying to limit the imagination. Oh, 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 shackle the, yeah. shackle the imagination. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I would That's tell shameful. people that, you know, your shameful. imagination... Your imagination comes right up to my nose. Mm-hmm. If it goes any further, then I push back. Yeah. And I'm pushing back. Yeah. I'm yeah. pushing back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, reclaiming that space. Yes. So, situation has changed um, a bit um, that people are more aware now, but the infrastructure has not seen the drastic overall, or the whole colonial structure have not really um, uh, changed um, to address even deeper issues. It's just going on, there's an opening, there's a flood of um, new ideas, new ways, new things, and it goes on that. And right about now, it's bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they're waiting on us, next generation people like you or me or even us, to come and um, save them because they are not, as institutions, going forward aggressively and changing their resource base to deal with um, what they need to deal with, and that is to support Canadian voices, First Nations, Indigenous voices, well, you know, um, I guess I have to say that um, after after doing battle, after counting mm-hmm. coup, I uh, I left the scene. I I, um, 
I don't want to say retreated, but I, I just left. I mean, there was a lot of dirty playing going on. Yeah. Uh, whenever I was out uh, uh, invited to, to speak about the issue of cultural appropriation, there was always a group of, uh, I'm mean, going to have to say white women, yeah. who were there as hecklers. Mm -hmm. It was not nice. Reactionary white women. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. And even yeah. if it wasn't a forum, uh, if we were, if we were uh, say, queued up to uh, at the cafeteria, they'd be behind me yeah. saying uh, nasty little things out loud, yeah. purposely, so I yeah. could hear them. Mm -hmm. Things like, um, am I black? Do I look black? You know, and they'd be wearing black clothes or, or right. something like that. But I mean, just those little digs would, the little, little digs like that, yeah. um, as well as uh, editors and publishers uh, thought that I could not be uh, objective, mm -hmm. that I was too biased. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter that I knew the subject, ma uh, subject material right. or, or had any insight into that. As far as they were concerned, I was just too biased, and that's kind of like yeah. a pun on my name yeah, yeah, yeah. at that time. Too biased. Yeah, yeah. so I thought, okay, yeah. if this is the way you people yeah. want to play, I, I'm not going to be a part of it. Yeah. So I, I, I went home crushing. and uh, started doing um, advocacy work in my community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's spirit crushing because only because you're hopeful. Only because you think a better world is possible. If you oh, were, it's got to be. If you didn't, it would have not mattered, or you would have, yeah. So, yeah. So I went home and I took a different approach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but still doing the same work. And yeah. I, I, uh, I just focused more on storytelling mm -hmm. and uh, took uh, various uh, uh, opportunities to be out there as a storytelling. Yeah. Um, and to me, storytelling is subversive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, as, like, I like being as, subversive. Especially the ones you tell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, you're a writer, and then you end up doing all this work. And it's the same for me, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's that we are committed to something. Right? So in some ways, we don't have an option, right? Because it's the work that we have to do, whether it's language or the, the, the work we produce, um, producing words on for a page or, you know, storytelling to an audience, um, listening to the land, you know. Um, well, you know, to me, I think it. that's all women's work. And we are women, and this is what we do. We uh, we we take care. Yeah. We take care of our home, of our land, uh, of our people. Mm -hmm. It's just like that um, uh, image of the grizzly bear we saw out there. Yeah. You know how ferocious uh, bears can be. Yeah. Well, I can be like that too, and I have been. Yeah. So you know, yeah. that's yeah, that's yeah, yeah. me. I'm. I'll take care of people. I'll take care of the culture. Right. Take right. care of our space. So you're not just satisfied with throwing your words on page and getting the accolades and going home. No, no, no. You know, and when I write, I, I, I don't write for the larger Canadian audience. I write for, I write for my people. I write to give voice to Anishinaabek um, and other, uh, other, um, Aboriginal Indigenous peoples, um, and that 
non-Indigenous peoples can, um, can appreciate that writing, um, to me, is a bonus that they can do it. And I, and I yeah. think for those who do appreciate it, it's, that, uh, it's because we have a shared history, but just from a different, uh, a different place in the circle. I think that's a real important point to make, that you write for your community. Because um, there's this notion of the universal reader. Um, and uh, therefore, everything must be um, sort of white out to gain that universal reader. But you're not seeking that universal reader. So no, I, no, I'm not. Yeah. No, I'm yeah. giving voice. No, thank you. You know, and, you know, people have accused me uh, of being angry. And to really? a degree, I, I, I have every right to be angry uh, because, because of the, uh, the, the breaking of, uh, of treaties, uh, because of residential school, because of Indian Day School, because of missing and murdered Aboriginal or indige Indigenous women. Mm -hmm. I have a right to be angry. But I, th I, th I think when people accuse me of, of being angry, they're actually projecting their own anger, or I should say embarrassment, yeah. on, on, on me. I write to, 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 to free ourselves from white oppression, mm -hmm. which is why I use things like, uh, I like to ruffle white feathers. So, so you're basically disrupting their sense of entitlement that they should own everything or they should have access to everything. Right, or they came into an empty land, a terra nullius, mm -hmm. and just, you know, they were right. <laughs> where there were no Aboriginal people. Yeah. A lot of baloney. Yeah. So your work has inspired many. Um, your writing, I mean, the, the work, I see your, your work, your, your act, I call it activism work, as a three-dimension of your 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 written work and your storytelling um it's inspired um a whole generation it's inspired um a lot of people your stance has also inspired people in fact equally i would say um, um what do you when you assess the kind of importance and effect of it especially given the terrain that you have inherited that you see in so-called can lit mm -hmm. and can culture, canned culture. How do you assess your own kind of um, input and contributions? I think first and foremost, I th I think it was something that I had to do. <laughs> it had it had to be done, and uh, in in doing so, in doing so, what it did was create create space. It pushed people back. It pushed pushed people back to, to, to make space. The other thing I have to say that, you know, while it appeared that maybe the, the writing, the larger writing community in Canada um, wasn't going to budge on cultural appropriation, there were other disciplines mm -hmm. who were listening and watching. And uh, so now there are, uh, say, in um, uh, ethnological research, uh, anthropological research, 
there are protocols there right. to acknowledge uh, their uh, their sources. Right. Yeah. And that's I th that's important. Yeah. yeah. Whereas before that was not happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, that sense of any um, kind of uh, protocols didn't exist. No. People were just in the colonizers mode. You know, you just go and take and throw around. Exactly. And the thing yeah. is, you could hear something in public, beca yeah. and because it was oral, they figured yeah. it was there, just there for, for, for the taking. Yeah. And that, that was routinely done. Yes, exactly. Yeah. They didn't see they, and they didn't want to see that there was a there was a kind of copyright protocol, right? That there were certain ways that people acquired uh, acquired the stories they tell. Yeah. yeah, and not just because they they put it down in a certain form. Right. Well, the the I work with a number of young people. I'm supporting a number of emerging BIPOC artists, which mm -hmm. is uh, for those uh, very BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, young and emerging, mostly spoken word artists. And I was very surprised. Well, the number one thing they wanted was intergenerational connection. Mm -hmm. They wanted to learn. They wanted a sense of what went on. And they also wanted a sense of centeredness that they perceived, mm -hmm. right? Um, and they also protocols. How do we go about things? How we do things? Because there is even in their personal lives, they say they're they're not protocols. Mm -hmm. They, you know, you just avoid getting caught. Yes. You know. Yeah. What were your thoughts on that? I think that's I I think that's mm -hmm. really important to mm -hmm. to know what the protocols are. Yeah. And all those non-native uh, Canadian writers who were stomping around, being really mad because because I was telling them not to not to uh, write uh, native culture, not to write native voice. I mean, they didn't even have the sense to come and ask. Well, how do I acquire uh, permission to use that material? Yeah. Nobody yeah. ever came and asked that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but for these young people, uh, there are protocols. One is by asking. By asking. You ask. By asking. And 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 if uh, and if your 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 request is rejected, you could go back again. Maybe you have to think about uh, what else needs to happen here. And. Um, when when we go asking, and I'm talking about the the uh, uh, native native community, we we ask with tobacco. We um, we do tobacco ties, and we will take this to an elder uh, or to someone, who, the person we want to get help from, and we will offer them tobacco, and they will accept it. So that's mm -hmm. kind of creating a relationship there. Right. And and when they accept it, they have uh, obligated themselves to help you at, to their best to the best of their ability. So when I was when I wanted to be a storyteller, I didn't know how to be a storyteller because uh, a lot of uh, a lot of our cultural understandings or appreciations and protocols were uh, 
had been lost because of or or forgotten because mm -hmm. of uh, residential school because of Indian day schools mm -hmm. where our cultures were were we were told basically that we had no culture mm -hmm. that we had no civilization that our stories were figments of the primitive imagination and so that's how I grew up not knowing what the protocol was but then when I when I when I discovered that we could ask with tobacco what I did was, I wanted to be a storyteller, and so I went to um, I went to my elder, and I gave her tobacco, mm -hmm. and I asked her, uh, or I t I told her, I want to fast, to become a storyteller, mm -hmm. and she accepted my tobacco, and then we went through the protocols, doing a fast. And I fasted for two days and two nights. I fasted for the stories that I tell mm -hmm. and the stories that I'm going to tell. Mm -hmm. So that's how I became a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's why I continue to use tobacco uh, for the stories that I tell mm -hmm. and the stories that, that I want to tell in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that's... Even just hearing you... Um, and having lost my protocols, you know, I've been transposed African. Um, and I'm, I'm feeling that, you know, this is a passage that you go through, that you honor and respect it. So I'm hearing you because a lot of those young people have no protocols for even their own to become anything, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, yes, they go to school, but that's not even, there's nothing spiritual attached to that, mm -hmm. right? Or nothing with accountability to mm -hmm. community or responsibility, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so this is something um, that, you know, I guess they can look to and, and, and talk to. Mm -hmm. Indigenous elders mm -hmm. about, um, you know, maybe or elders in their communities. Uh, that that is right. That, that is right. And it doesn't have to be, you know, in a particular protocol, but there needs to be protocol. There has to be, yeah. I, you know, and the protocol is a ceremonial it's protocol. A, a ritual. So a ritual, yeah. yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So what's the, um, what's the importance of the tobacco? The... Um, in Anishinaabe culture, we yeah. have uh, four sacred medicines. Right. Cedar, and and I, I have to say because this um, I think addresses uh, the uh, the four quadrants of the circle, right. or the four directions. And uh, so our medicines are cedar, sage, sweetgrass, and tobacco. Cedar. Uh, is used as a, as a cleanser, as a purifier, because it has the power to take away negative uh, feelings, negative energy. Sweetgrass, or sage, um, we burn sage in, in, in ceremonies, and um, sage um, deals with emotions. And uh, sometimes when we're in, in, in circles, uh, the and and what we are talking about is really difficult, mm -hmm. and so uh, sage is then burned to to uh, 
to ease the pain of uh, those intense emotions or to lessen the intensity. Um, sweetgrass is used for persuasion. It was said that the young man, when, young men in, in times past, whenever they went out courting, would braid sweetgrass into their hair when they go out looking for a sweetheart. Yeah. And I, I know during uh, the discussions on cultural appropriation, I would keep sweetgrass with me somewhere, somewhere on my person. Um, and to me, tobacco is uh, signifies... Uh, relationship and reciprocity, mm -hmm. giving and taking. Mm -hmm. So when we go out harvesting uh, plants or, or hunting or fishing, we give tobacco because we're going to be taking the lives mm -hmm. of those plants or those animals um, or, the, or those fish, mm -hmm. and they're, they, they, they're going to help us. So tobacco, to me, is relationship and uh, reciprocity, giving and taking, so a relationship. Well, thanks for that uh, schooling. <laughs> it, was really, it was something. So talking about relationships, um, you know, through all of this, you have lost some relationships. I'm sure I've lost a few. Oh, yes. There was one that was actually really important to me that I lost. I, I won't go into it. Um, but you've gained some good relationships. What What are the most important ones that you've gained? Um, and why are they important? Ah, that's, that's really hard to say. But every once in a while, uh, people, um, younger people will come up and they know who I am because of the, the, the work I did on cultural appropriation. Um, some of the other relationships are actually my children, who in, in their way, ways are uh, carrying out, uh, continuing to carry out uh, this work in building community, mm -hmm. either dealing with um, cultural appropriation in, in uh, visual and graphic arts, or uh, building community through um, community gardens. And, well, for example, my son working with the uh, Children's Peace Camp in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. And, and my daughter, Keitha, working with the uh, Native Arts community in Toronto um, uh, on issues of the cultural appropriation, but doing her own, her own work to, uh, again, uh, give voice uh, through um, the visual arts to Aboriginal uh, Native uh, experience and knowledge and worldview. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, I, I, I can feel the sense and I know that sense of um, feeling that the work continues mm -hmm. and that um, it will go on. As necessary. Yeah, but you know what I find yeah. really frustrating yeah, yeah. is that it seems that the dominant society just doesn't learn, doesn't want to learn because, I mean, we're now into another cycle of cultural appropriation. I'm no longer part of it, but I support all those young people out there who are continuing uh, on, on that, uh, that fight against the colonial mindset.
Right, right. And now we have the internet, so it's a mashup. It's a, oh my gosh. It takes <laughs> five minutes to sort of um, get to what uh, somebody would have taken 20 years to figure exactly. out. Exactly. And then they use yeah. it and it's their own. And you know, there's yeah. a big difference yeah. there too. Yeah. Whereas when you and I were, were, were doing these battles back yeah. in the 80s and 90s, I mean, we were people meeting face to face. Whereas now, uh, I mean, there's the internet, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's right. Instagram, there's right. all these right. other things. Right. And it's so much uh, faster in, yeah. in, in getting getting those messages right. out. Right. And, and so much virtual in, um, in not landing, in not being accountable to a particular space Exactly. Or a if, body. if you can be yeah. anonymous. Yeah. That's not, yeah. to me, that's yeah. not fair. Yeah. You yeah. know, I put myself out there. When yeah. I put myself yeah. out there, I put my body out there. Yeah. It definitely the the question of at least the first half of the twenty first century is to figure out what's real and what's not, mm -hmm. because all that's meshed in the virtual. Um, virtual world <laughs> yeah reality. or whatever it is so that people um think they're the same mm -hmm. and um you know i mean i don't have much to say about that but i just think that um it 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 does not land a person in a real relationship embodied and having to be accountable um, for their sneezes. Right, right. So that let's let's um, let's say um, um, a book of poetry or a poem, words written on a page. To me, that's always been uh, the page. Words written on a page are like a mnemonic device, mm -hmm. like a, like a recipe. So a book of poetry is, right. is, is, a, is a cookbook. And there are only words on a page, and they'll, they'll stay words on a page. But how you make the recipe come true mm -hmm. or come real is actually by being with people, putting those words out into, out into the air and feeling that cycle of energy uh, come back between the listener and, and, and the speaker. That's, mm -hmm. that's how those stories come real. I find that, and I and I think this is probably the same with the with the with the new technology, that that with writing, if you become dependent on the written word, then a number of things happen. You forget how to listen. You forget how to remember. Because you can just highlight things, or you can make little notes in the in the margins, or turn down the corner of the page and then put it up on the bookshelf, right? So you forget how to remember, you forget how to listen, and because you can't do either of those things, I think you become disrespectful. So to me, when um, um, face to face communication, uh, storytelling, dub poetry, for example. Is so important, yeah, yeah. because it's like yeah. right there. I see your eyes. Yeah. I hear your voice, right. and it makes my heart beat. And it's the fullest form of communication, definitely. Right? Because communication is not just words, no, or language. no, yeah, 
It's not. So at some point, it seems like people will be in droves. They'll be returning to that presence of communication. I hope so. Because you cannot stay in that other space. In the virtual. Just no, because like it's, it's not real. It's, it's not, not real. It's not real. It's not real. So I want to follow up on relationships because uh, I heard Chris Creighton Kelly talked about how important you were to him in mm-hmm. the work he did to help to transform the Canada Council in terms of addressing equity and getting the Aboriginal advisory going. Mm-hmm. And as you know, Chris has done many, a lot of important work um, yes, across the country and uh, is partner of France too. Uh, she, she in her own right. Um, and you always talk about Norbessie Phillips, right? Oh, my gosh, I love yes. you talk about relation. <laughs> you know, maybe you're not in their kitchens, but you're in the kitchens of their hearts. And you know, they hold you all the time. Yeah. They think about you and talk about yeah. you. Susan Crean, who's one of my best yes. friends, she talks yes. about you all the time. Uh. Well, these women were really, well, they were in the trenches with us, Uh, maybe Mm. in a different area, but, but, but they were there. And um, I think the last time uh, we had a gathering in Toronto, um, revisiting the, um, I can't remember the title. 20 years of writing through race. Writing, 20 years of writing through race. Uh, Someone in the audience uh, bemoaned the fact that uh, Norvisi Phillips didn't seem to have been or wasn't involved, but she was. She was, and I was in touch with her. Um, I was in touch with her a lot. I wanted her to be a part of it, but she very respectfully said, I'm sorry, but I can't do that. She says, the work you have to do is really important, and if I were involved, I would become a lightning rod right. because of, because of the, the, uh, the battles that uh, she was having. Yeah, yeah. But she yeah. was there with us, mm-hmm. and I, I really want people to understand and to know that she, yeah. was, she was part of Writing Through Race. She was part of all that movement. She was. Waging the battle with some of the... Goliaths, right. so to speak. Definitely. <laughs> and then, and yeah. then uh, Susan Crean, she became the, um, I believe it was the president she of the Writers' the Union of yeah. Canada mm-hmm. and was always very supportive of the uh, Racial Minority Writers' Committee mm-hmm. and uh, the work that that committee was doing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I believe that, like, like us, she suffered for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the white supremacy doesn't... Um, <laughs> give up anything, no. right? It means people have to change all the things they've believed about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that doesn't happen easily. But yeah. And they have to give up space. Yeah. Oh, and call upon the resources too. Yeah, and the women's press, mm-hmm. I mean, that was one of the triggering points around the appropriation issue. That's right. With people like uh, Maureen Fitzgerald and uh, Anne Dector. And um, so forth, they took a stand around um, uh, what women were writing in the voice of um, people they were not, BIPOC people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and that, yeah. actually, that's the that's mm-hmm. the issue that that really yeah. got to my heart, yeah. and why I told 
uh, Daniel Moses, I had to, I'd, I'd have to speak up. You'd have, you'd have to speak up. Yeah, so there are a lot of people who were on the right side of history mm-hmm. and who, um, you know, I call it an intellectual crisis because I, how can you figure this out? You know, you're bright people. You know, mm-hmm. you need to figure this out. Mm-hmm. Not a cultural crisis. Mm-hmm. It means you have to sit down and you think and your first basic bottom line, how do you think that some human beings are not equal. Mm-hmm. To me, that's an intellectual crisis. <laughs> that's nothing. You know what I mean? Yes, how do you? I mean, different, yes, maybe, but I don't even know how different you want to emphasize that, right? Uh-huh. Um, but they have a right they, to be. But they, they, they have a fundamental right to be. They breathe. They do, you know what I mean? And yes. how do you think they're not your brothers and your sisters? Mm-hmm. This is it. This is what I'm thinking. How on mm-hmm. earth? Mm-hmm. Can you think that uh, you're not connected? Um, and of course, as you know, that goes out into. There were some people, less, yeah. There were yeah. there were some people who were not part of the and didn't want to be part of the or didn't want to be on the side of uh, of indigenous writers, uh, racial minority writers, mm-hmm. and um, and sided with uh, mainstream Canadian writers. And because of that, yeah. uh, I, I, they were elevated. Yeah, that happened to me. And they were men. Yeah, yeah. They, they were, they were men. They're, Two very men. prominent. In your, uh, in your community. Uh, that's right. Yeah, people run to them for refuge and to validation. Mm-hmm. Um, they like. And they, yeah, and they still hold that status uh, for um, mainstream Canadian Indigenous writers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always been, um, they look for, to point out exceptionalism. Mm-hmm. And um, they tried that with me. Um, well, you're different, you're exceptional. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I got this from the culture. <laughs> this is who I am. You know, and um, I do it because of the culture. This is just me, mm-hmm. different, but not exceptional. You know what I yeah. mean? Put a little bit more time in, but... Those are my people. You're not going to separate me from them. Definitely. Don't yeah. care what it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So, we know that. So, um, so your practices change. We talked about, you know, a bit about that. Um, mm-hmm. And um, you look so, <laughs> so happy and regal and, uh, you know, um and just that have that internal glow and i'm thinking you were reaching through all this to come to a space where you could stand your ground and be what you want to write and talk about mm-hmm. and i you know interacting you look at you and following you over the years you mm-hmm. have come to that point mm-hmm. and you know more than that you have um children who you have guided or just by being who you are have uh taken on uh, oh i'm so talk a bit about that because uh that to me is um the biggest reward in a way and it's it's if you even want to talk about uh revenge <laughs> that is the biggest revenge I, I just wake up and i'm so elated I'm like, yes you know uh, yeah uh yes um 
you know, my 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 children were were there with me during during this time, and um, and I could see as they were growing up that there were certain times actually some of the words I had been saying out in the public were actually coming coming out of their mouths, mm -hmm. and now they are out there in the public. As I said, my my daughter Keitha, as a as a visual artist, uh, is all, uh, in Toronto is uh, working uh, on issues of cultural appropriation, uh, and and my son working with the Children's Peace Theatre doing community uh, development, mm -hmm. um, and again working with working with our communities, mm -hmm. and it, it just makes me so happy, uh, and. Um, I think they're both happy doing the work that mm -hmm. they're doing, uh, but I know uh, working uh, uh, on issues of cultural appropriation can be uh, can be really frustrating. And then I encourage them that you know you have you have the four sacred medicines, you have ceremony, and uh, that's where you'll find your strength and your second wind. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you have to stand back and you know. Um, Pick your pick your battles. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't battle everything. So pick your battles. And for me, my battle was uh, cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, well, that's so great. How lucky they are to be your mom. That you're their <laughs> mom, and I'm sure you feel lucky to have them. Too. Oh, I you know I've um, my children are my teachers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I um, um I I've I've learned I've learned from them. Um, you know, I've, I've always felt that I was a very liberal person uh, in bringing up my children and encouraging them to explore and stuff like that. And of course, there were times they would take that and they would just stretch it yeah. <laughs> and stretch it. And then they'd say, yeah. is this what you mean, mom? Yeah. <laughs> is this what yeah. you mean? And then yeah. it would snap back, yeah. right? And then again, yeah. another another child would yeah. take and stretch yeah. and say, how does this look? Yeah. You know, and, and of course, I have to just bite my lip and yeah. Yeah. let yeah, them yeah. let them let them explore. Let them um, you know, and one thing I I have to say, uh, I have like uh, four daughters and a son, and uh, my my um, I'm I'm proud of them all. But I have to say, what I learned from my son. It was my daughters who who really challenged my liberalism, you know, in, in letting them do and be and uh, stuff like that. But my son, he actually gave me a very spiritual teaching. When he was just a, a, a little guy, uh, we'd been out somewhere and uh, we, we came home. And so this little, this little, he must have been about three or four years old. We got we got back to our apartment, uh, our home, and uh, he went over to the to the couch and he grabbed the pillow, mm -hmm. and he started wrestling with the pillow. Uh -huh. uh, and I watched him, and he was rolling on the ground, and then the pillow was on top of him. Yeah. He was on top of the pillow. They were falling off the 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 big cushy chair, and uh, that went on for a good uh, five ten minutes, mm -hmm. and then he he stood up picked up the pillow, put it back on the chair where he got it, and he said, there, I've wrestled with God. Oh. And that was the first time it occurred to me that 
I too could wrestle with the great spirit. Whereas before, you know how you learn in Christianity that you're always saying thank you and, and, and you're distant, right? So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's, wow. Yeah, that's, I'm hearing that and I'm thinking, that's an incredible teaching. I think God would want you to wrestle with him. Yeah, tomorrow. she would. Yes. <laughs> we would have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do, you, what do you hope for the next generation? Um, what, what are your hopes for them? I know what we can see and some of it's predictable, some not. What, what are you hoping for them? What's your best hope? What I hope is... What I hope is that people will value diversity and love all those people who are coming to this country. And uh, I want to see that people value the contributions that they bring, uh, whether it's their language, their, their food, their music, their, their literature. Uh, their way of honoring creation, mm -hmm. and that uh, and that we can live uh, in harmony that way. You know, we have the medicine circle, the, or the medicine wheel. It has the four colors. Mm -hmm. Some people say it's the four colors of uh, of people. I like to to say it's the four color or the four directions, mm -hmm. and people from those four directions will come together here in uh, North America. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and be that medicine wheel, be those four colors, those four directions. Uh, my friend Maria Campbell said that the, the medicine wheel was um, um, a symbol of peace and harmony. And that uh, it and it shows balance the the four quadrants in in balance because if you take away one of those colors, then then that then that wheel is unbalanced. Right. So that's that's my dream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that is that the prophecy that that uh, that Turtle Island will be the place where the four colors of people will come together as one, and it doesn't mean a melting pot. Mm -hmm. It means uh, balance and harmony, mm -hmm. diversity, right. and all like beautiful voices. <laughs> uh huh. That's 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 a good vision. That's a nice vision. Hey, so um, we did talk a little about technology, but I'm gonna leave that off for a bit because if we ever get into that, there's no end to that. I think the people themselves in that are in free flow. You know, mm -hmm. you're post-human and, mm -hmm. and uh, blah, blah. So let's talk about um, artists like um, yourself, me, who are um, getting older. Um, <laughs> oh, and the body I, I, doesn't work the way it used to. <laughs> you know, uh, we're changes in our body. We're not the boss of it anymore. Oh, my gosh. Um, the... Um, you know, the, the amount of things we used to do, we have to give up some of the things we wanted. You know, and I think that's have. the hardest thing yeah. is to acknowledge that yeah. and to let it, to let go. Yeah. Yeah. To let go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, 
that's hard. And um, I mean, me, I'm uh, still physically fit, although I, sometimes my hip aches. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I go out. I, I go out walking. Uh, I do canoeing. Uh, I go to my daughter's riding stable and I shovel. Oh yeah. <laughs> I shovel the stalls. Right. I find that work actually very mindful. Very mindful being there by myself, mm -hmm. just cleaning those stalls, mm -hmm. one pitchfork <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. full at, yeah, yeah. at at a time. Um, but it's uh, it's kind of letting go. It's kind of letting go. That's and to me the go. hardest thing yeah. is letting go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have done it to a certain degree, but I think I think there's probably a lot more letting go that I need to that that I need to do. Right. I think also too, uh, in letting go is kind of remaking, remaking oneself. What am right. I going to do after I retire? Right, and not just sitting around. Not just sitting around vegetating, yeah. but uh, right. you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So people talk about elder, and it's a very kind of um, term that is very specific to. Uh, in some ways, your culture. Um, uh, Larissa named what here, wi the Wisdom Council, mm -hmm. our little gathering here. Mm -hmm. um, how is your category of moving into that space? Um, that you could uh, talk to us about? <laughs> oh, that's, that's really difficult. Um, because one does not call oneself an elder. That is something that is given over uh, from, from, other, from other people. Uh, it makes me laugh because um, years ago when, when my children were younger, I, I, was, uh, I worked in daycare. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was, uh, we, we were out at the front of the daycare to, to, to meet the school bus. And the children who were in the afternoon uh, after school program uh, disembarked, and the bus drove away. And there was one child that I had not ticked off my list. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I went running after the school bus to see if that child was still on there. Mm -hmm. And uh, this child was not. So I returned back to the group, and uh, the kids who had gotten off were giving my, my team teacher <laughs> heck mm -hmm. because she was younger than me. She was the one that should have run after the school bus oh, instead yeah. of me, oh, whom yeah. they had classified as a pre-elder. Right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> a pre-elder. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that is really something. <laughs> so, yeah. So how would you describe your practice now? I mean, you know, obviously writing alone didn't do it for you. You 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 combine writing with storytelling, um, and you talk about your storytelling. You talk about your work in the forest. Mm -hmm. Of course, your work as a mother, your work as influencing other people. How do you classify your practice? Um, I guess I still see myself as a facilitator. Uh, as uh, well as a storyteller and as a facil facilitator, because what I like to do is I like to take people out uh, out into the forest and out in the canoe. 
I like to help them uh, get to understand their relationship with the land and, and with the water. And the reason I say this is, again, if we go back to the medicine wheel with the, with the four colors and people from the four, four directions of the earth coming together, um, they're not going to go back. Mm -hmm. They're here, and they're claiming uh, this country as their home. Mm -hmm. Canada is becoming mm -hmm. their home. Mm -hmm. and, I, uh, and, and so how I see this is I need to take these people out onto the land and on, out on the water mm -hmm. because I remember when, when my brothers uh, were, were coming into their manhood, uh, they um, they went to my they they went to our grandfather, our father's father, and they asked him who 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 is Anishinaabe? How do we find Anishinaabe? And his uh, what he told them was the land. Go out onto the land. And so that's why I like to take people out on the land, because they're not going to go back to uh, the countries that they've come from, mm -hmm. countries that are full of strife, and they want to be Canadians. Mm -hmm. And even though I don't see myself as a Canadian, but uh, I want them to have that connection with the land. Mm -hmm. Because if they can find themselves, who they are on the land, then they are more apt to take care of it. And, and love it. I want them to love it the way yeah. our people have loved the land. Yeah. And to also feel the this is how I, this is how I think they'll, they they will learn yeah. to make it home yeah. by being yeah. out there and understanding yeah. and seeing yeah. themselves in relationship uh, to the land and the water. Yeah, and just feeling that thickness uh, of the continuum. Yes, and they'll yeah. they'll caretake the life. Yeah. yeah. Do you do um, a, a, a little story we can share? Um, oh, I have lots of stories. Yeah, well, can you give us one? I, I'll let you choose. Just throw it out. Okay. To thrill the audience. What a gift. Okay. Um, Listen to Lenore Kishin Tobias. Oh, you know. <laughs> She's got stories. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I can tell you why I'm a political being. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is his memory of my dad. So my, um, my dad um, went to uh, Indian Day School on the reserve. And um, he was punished for speaking Ojibwe. He was punished for speaking French, the only two lang the only languages that he knew. And then, of course, he was punished for speaking English. And he only knew two words of English at that time, yes and no. So he said he stayed in school long enough to learn how to do uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And then, I guess he was about 17, uh, was his time to go out and make his way in the world. And he ended up in... Um, he ended up in a lumber camp in northern Ontario, and he said the work was hard. He said that uh, the food was good. They, they got fed, they had warm beds to sleep in, but the work was hard. And the men at that time got paid once a month. 
So he said with uh, his first uh, his first pay, he went into t in, into the nearest town with the other guys and drank his money away. <laughs> so had nothing to show for it. So he took the next month to to think about how we would do it better. So uh, with a second pay, they went into town. He went to the hotel and got a bath, got himself cleaned up, and then he went to the library. And his reason for going to the library was to look for uh, books about, about Indians. And there weren't very many, probably, if that, one or two, maybe. And he read those, and he was so disheartened because... The both books, or the books, what he read, predicted that within 50 years, the Indian would vanish from the face of the earth. So here's this young man, 17, 18 years old, maybe, faced with that, that if he lived to be 70, he'd be the only, he'd be the only Indian in the world. And it bothered him. And so he... He thought about it. He's, he had to do something. He felt he had to do something about it. And so he thought and he thought. And he came up with a solution. He would find himself a nice young wife and fuck like crazy. <laughs> so here I am. <laughs> I'm the I'm the oldest of I'm the oldest of ten. Yeah. And uh I've I I've lost count of how many how many grandchildren there are and how many great grandchildren. But I have uh I have uh, five children, I have eight grandchildren, I have a I have a great granddaughter, and as uh we uh said earlier, I told you earlier, I have uh, sons and a son and daughters who are carrying on this work. So we come by it legitimately. <laughs> It's in our uh, DNA. Absolution, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. It's in our DNA. And Indeed. you know that too, don't you? I know yeah. that. That's yeah. awesome. So, great. It's so lovely to talk to you. What a delight. What a gift. Um, oh, well, thank yeah. you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking with yes. you, Lillian. Okay, I love you so much. I love you too, <laughs> sister. Yeah. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stoichel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Trin Delaney, Rebecca Jelaine, Isabel Michalski, and Joshua Whitehead.